0: Hello, this is a podcast Ukraine War Decoded And I'm its author Viktor Kovalenko from the United States This podcast is about Ukraine, Russia and security in Europe In this episode I will present an expert opinion from Germany How did that happen that Germany developed dependence on Russia And why does official Berlin face criticism for helping Ukraine slow? My guest today is a prominent German historian, Dr. Jan Klaus Behrens. He is a leading expert on the history of Soviet and Russian security services and is known for his research on Stalinism, propaganda, and wars in the Soviet and post Soviet space. Dr. Behrens, what is your opinion about the relationships between Germany and Russia since the collapse of the Soviet Union? In particular, what Germany and the collective West did wrong that Russia couldn't become a civilized partner?
1: Well, I think, you know, you cannot only talk about the West and Germany when it comes to this terrible situation that we have to face now. I think, as a historian of Russia also, not only of Eastern Europe, but also, you know, I study, I study Russia and I've written a lot about Russia, that basically Moscow, the Kremlin, decides its own fate. You know, they decide where they want to go. And I'm not very much convinced of the whole, you know, who did or when did we lose Russia, who lost Russia debate? Because mainly I think that in the 1990s there was a fair amount of help for Russia from the German side. There was a lot of monetary help, logistical help for post-communist Russia. And there was a genuine try under the Kohl government to establish a friendly relationship, long-lasting partnership with Russia. And it was Russia under Putin who chose not to go down this road. So, you know, I don't think that the West is mainly to blame for this war or for this bad relationship. Russia went back to its authoritarian and imperial past. As a historian, you can argue, we can argue that this is the Russian normal in the last uh, 300 years. And that maybe, you know, Gorbachev was a very, very short exception to that normal. And we can see that the problems with Russia don't only start under Putin, I'm very much convinced that the problems of Russia are the continuity of the elites. There were always the old elites, there were no new elites like in Poland or other places, uh, Czech Republic. You know, there's no Russian Vanuelsa, there's no Russian Vaclav Havel. The continuity of institutions, the army, the KGB that were never reformed, and then, you know, last but not least, the continuity of the Russian and Soviet mindset. It's a very imperial mindset, and it could never deal with the result of the imperial collapse of 1989-1991. Uh, but I think this has rather little to do with what the West or Germany did I think that, at the end of the day, we made fair offers to Russia, the so-called modernisierungspartnerschaft a partnership in, in modernizing Russia that was launched in the 2000s would have been mutually beneficial. But this was a road not taken by the Kremlin.
0: Dr. Behrens, what do you think about the personality of Vladimir Putin as a Russian leader? How did that happen, that he evolved from the KGB agent on a mission in eastern Germany into the Russian government official? and then into such a monster like Stalin.
1: Well, we only got to know him in 1999, or at least I didn't know him before. I didn't uh, know him as a deputy mayor of Petersburg. I only knew him when he became prime minister. And I think many Germans, you know, from a German perspective, at first were very impressed by him. Um, Also because of the very bad figure of Boris Yeltsin, who, you know, had his alcohol problems and other problems. And, you know, suddenly there was this young person and he was even speaking German and he was invited to the German Bundestag. And a lot of people had initially a positive reaction. I was much more skeptical personally because I knew that he had this KGB background. But um, to tell you the truth, in the beginning of the 2000s, I thought that you should give the guy a chance, right? And that maybe he could do things better than Yeltsin. Um, The first thing that got me very skeptical about uh, Vladimir Putin and his policies was his media policy, the very strong assault on free uh, media that started almost immediately after he took power. And then, of course, his war in Chechnya. The war in Chechnya was a terrible war from the beginning, including war crimes, um, you know, against civilians, the complete destruction of Grozny and, and so on. So there were very bad signs. But I also remember going to Moscow in the beginning of the 2000s and seeing this economic boom and many of my Russian friends didn't like Putin personally, but they thought that they were living in very good times initially. So I think it was only when he came back to power after this Medvedev intermezzo that most of my liberal Russian friends realized um, what this would mean. And they were already back then in 2011, 2012, very, very skeptical about the future and thought that this would turn into a real relationship. When it comes to Putin as a personality, I think we have to understand what is his generation. He is what I call the last Soviet generation. So his mindset is very much set on the order of Yalta. I think he believes that in 1945, a European order was established that was justified by the Russian victory, by Stalin's victory in World War II. And when Putin looks at a map, whether we like that or not, he thinks that, you know, places like East Berlin, Prague, Budapest and Warsaw, you know, should at least be under some sort of Russian influence and so on, because that's how it was historically when he grew up and he has never made his peace with this collapse of the Order of Yalta. Additionally, I think that he is very much, of course, influenced by his KGB past. He thinks like a KGB agent, He thinks in conspiracies, he thinks in, you know covert actions. Um, he thinks that the West is after him and his regime, and you know that the CIA is very powerful and all these things. But then also, I think he's very much influenced by his first position in political power, which was in criminal St. Petersburg of the 1990s. So at the end of the day, I think if we want to understand who he is and how he does his policies, we have to understand that Putin is a mixture of KGB and Russian mafia of the 1990s.
0: My next question is about how Putin and his propaganda machine manipulate history to justify the war against Ukraine. For example, Putin said there is no such a country like Ukraine, and those are Russian lands. But the reality is different, and Ukraine is a sovereign country for 31 years. He claimed that Ukrainians are the same as Russians. They are not. I think such historical arguments are simply not valid.
1: Well, again, I think he's a very typical representative of his generation. First of all, let me start like this. I don't think that Vladimir Putin knows very much about Ukraine and understands Ukrainian very well. That's where the problems start, right? But that's true for very many Russians that I've met that only go or went to Ukraine, maybe during Soviet times, and uh, especially of his generation. And they think that Ukrainians are Russians who speak a bit of a funny accent and are, you know, more like peasants or little brothers. They have this feeling of superiority towards Ukrainian culture. I think this is very typical. You find it a lot in Moscow and St. Petersburg, although if you look at it, of course, more closely, it's not uh, justified. But it's part of this ignorance about Ukraine, Ukrainian culture and the Ukrainian nation that I think is very typical for his generation. I don't think that he is so much fixated on the Stalin era, actually. I think that Putin is very much more influenced by Imperial Russia. He wants to get back the conquest of Catherine the Great. He wants this imperial lands that Catherine took for Russia, so-called Novorossiya, Crimea, Galicia, Poland, and so on. These are basically conquests of the 18th century. And he believes in this 19th century idea of Slavic brotherhood, of especially the Orthodox brotherhood between uh, Belarusians, Ukrainians, and Russians. And, and believes that basically, you know, just like Solzhenitsyn and other Russian imperialists and nationalists, that this is the same nation just in three different tribes or so on, and um, but which is a very typical, as we know, 19th uh, century belief. And he uses this together with the myth of World War II to justify the war. This is, I think, where the imperial 19th century thinking that is very important for Putin comes together with the Stalinism of the 1940s when he claims that this is a war against fascism again and that the Russians have to fight the Second World War all over again to defeat fascism in Ukraine. So I think, you know, it's a very interesting complex, but then on the other hand, also very stereotypical mixture of historical narratives from the 18th, 19th and 20th century that Putin uses very eclecticistically, actually. And I think, you know, these are also offers for different parts of the Russian population, because some people can maybe more identify with the anti-fascist narrative. Some people can more identify with the imperialist narrative. And um, certainly all of these narratives are not about Ukraine so much. They show how little they know about Ukraine. And I think also the war um, that started in 2014 already showed that Putin had underestimated the resistance of the Ukrainian. And he again underestimated it this time because he knows so little about Ukrainian identity of the post-war era. But he has strong beliefs in these imperial and Soviet mythology, and he uses it as to justify um, the war.
0: My next question is about the previous Chancellor of Germany, Angela Merkel. There are some not very favorable stereotypes among Ukrainians about her. First, that she was a friend of Putin, allowing him to build the Nord Stream pipelines, damaging Ukrainian interests. On the other hand, Chancellor Merkel was a chief peacemaker during the first Russian invasion in 2014-2015. But again, Ukraine had to make territorial and political concessions, and the Minsk peace agreements mediated by Merkel never actually worked.
1: Well, I think it depends on the years of Merkel's rule. It's 16-year rule that you talk about, and then you will see more light years and more dark years and more shadow and more light, depending on where you look. But obviously, if we look at the outcome in the end, I mean, the second all-out war of Russia against Ukraine, then we can say that her Russia policy failed and uh, was very bad for Ukraine, but also for Germany, because she cemented this energy dependence of Germany and German industry on Russia. And she very consciously did this. But we have to talk about different years, right? During the Obama administration, I think she was left with the Russian problem because the Obama administration did the so-called pivot to the Pacific. They were not very interested in Russia. They did the reset and uh, so-called reset in American-Russian relations and hoped to have the Russian problem solved. And it was at times of Medvedev. And they were, I think, very much caught by surprise, the Americans, when Russia attacked in, in 2014. But I think the first mistake of Merkel was much earlier in her tenure. It was in 2008 when she denied, together with the French, the Ukrainians and the Georgians, the fast path into NATO. Because all other post-war and post-Cold War German governments, the governments of Helmut Kohl and Gerhard Schröder, had supported NATO expansion and EU expansion. And Merkel was the first one to say no to Ukraine and Georgia. And this left these countries, of course, in a limbo. And this created a very dangerous situation from 2008 onwards. We see it with the Russian-Georgian war in the summer of 2008 that happens right after this decision. Um, But she doesn't learn from that. I am not that negative about Minsk, you know, in Minsk, I think 2015, um, Minsk II, the Americans had outsourced this Russia policy to Germany and maybe Germany was a bit overwhelmed. It was the first time after the Second World War that we had to negotiate a European peace. And I think this peace was very bad, of course, for Ukraine. But it left also a breathing space. I think militarily, Ukraine was in a very bad situation during the time of Minsk 1 and Minsk 2. And maybe it was good to stop the fighting, at least for the most part, through these negotiations. I would not blame Merkel for this. I would blame her, however, then um, for after seeing that the Minsk Accords didn't work for resisting, for example, the armament of Ukraine. You know, I mean, we know now that she always resisted the sending of NATO weapons and advisors to Ukraine until the very last minute. And of course, also after the invasion of Crimea and Donbass, she signed the Treaty for Nord Stream uh, 2, which I think maybe was the biggest mistake of her whole time in office. So I think, you know, we have to be ambivalent and fair about her. Not everything she did was bad. But generally, I think her legacy is very problematic. Her legacy is war in Europe and her legacy is Germany's dependence on Russia and, by the way, also on China. She has always been very soft on these uh, post-communist dictatorships, Russia and China. She always wanted a a partnership with Beijing and uh, Moscow And I never understood why, as someone who had herself grown up in East Germany and who knew what dictatorship was, what communist dictatorship was, why she decided to be so soft on the Kremlin, but also on China and bring us, the Germans, but also whole parts of the European Union, by the way, and such a dependence on these um, dictatorial states. And one may also ask the question... Why she actually had so little empathy with Ukraine, you know, I mean, she would go to all these parades on Red Square to sit next to Putin, but she resisted publicly supporting Ukraine in a very visual way. And I'm not sure why this is the case. This is maybe also for historians of the future to research. But she had a much warmer relationship, I think, with Russia than, for example, with the smaller countries of Eastern Europe, like uh, Czechia, Poland, Ukraine, the Baltic states. It always seemed to me that she was not so interested in developing Germany's relationships with our allies in Eastern Europe, that she was much more interested in developing our relationship with the Kremlin. And this is certainly part of a very, very problematic uh, legacy that needs to be talked about in Germany and that needs to be discussed and analyzed in the coming years.
0: During the war, we hear criticism of Germany from Ukraine regarding slow supplies of weapons. The US are also criticizing Germany for that. For example, a U.S. general Ben Hodges, a former commander of the U.S. Army in Europe, tweeted that Germany should be the leader of Europe and it needs to help Ukraine to defeat the Kremlin and be seen as having contributed significantly to Ukrainian success. Can we expect the turning point in German policy, so-called Zeitenwende?
1: Well, I think this criticism is fully justified. Um, but on the other hand, I mean, I think there should be more help for Ukraine. There should especially be more heavy weapons. But on the other side, we have to remember what is the legacy of uh, 16 years of Angela Merkel. Is It is also that we have an army that is very low on supplies for the defense of NATO and of our country. Um, so we actually don't have that much to give. We could give more. I agree with that. But certainly we are also not in the position like the Americans or British that we have endless or big supplies that we could ship to Ukraine. I would insist that there is a change in policy, of course, because the whole Nord Stream 2 was um, uh, stopped. In the foreseeable future will be no more um, energy partnership uh, with Russia. There will be no partnership with Russia at all. You know, this was always what Merkel was trying to save after 2014. I mean, after 2014, from the side of German academia, of German experts on Eastern Europe, there was a lot of criticism already of this Merkel policy with Nord Stream. It was not only criticized in Ukraine and Poland, but it was also uh, criticized by the experts and the specialists here in Germany, including myself, if I may say. But she, um, Angela Merkel, always tried to save this partnership with Russia, and I think this is gone, and this is, if you will, the Titan vendor, the strong part of the Titan vendor. The weak part is that we could do more on Ukraine, but there you have to see the reluctance of Germany when it comes to supplying weapons and when it comes to war, which is sort of like a a legacy of World War II and the sort of pacifist uh, agenda that is very strong in, in German society, or at least in parts of German society. Also, not everyone. And parts of the government seem to think that it would be very unpopular to send too many weapons to Ukraine. But you can also see that there's a lot of dissatisfaction in German society. Many Germans think that we should do more for Ukraine. Um, This is not necessarily a very popular policy. And we also have to see that German society, along with Polish society, who did even more, um, did a lot for for Ukrainian refugees and welcomed them and integrated them into our schools and football clubs and uh, everything, churches and so on, and provided them with living space and donated a lot of money for them. So I wouldn't say it's all black and white. You know, I mean, there's many things going on in this country. There's many debates going on. I think our government, maybe this would be my conclusion, is moving much slower than our society. I think our society is much more ready to help Ukraine than our parts of the establishment in the foreign office and the chancellery and so on, who want to keep this very timid course, who don't want to get too much involved, who want to outsource these things to the Americans. Uh, But I think that actually in German society and if you travel around the country, um, there's a lot of sympathy with uh, Ukraine. You know, you can still see a lot of Ukrainian flags on public buildings, but also on private houses. You know, even in the villages where I was uh, over the summer, people have Ukrainian flags on front of their house and so on. So um, the stereotype um, that, you know, large parts of German society are supporting Russia is certainly not true.
0: Personally, I am pessimistic that Putin's era of nostalgia for the Soviet Union will end in Russia anytime soon, even if President Putin will leave his post or be toppled. What is your opinion, Dr. Barnes? Does Russia have a chance to overcome the Soviet past and finally pursue a path towards a civilized country?
1: Actually, I'm rather more optimistic. I think that Russia also has positive sides like, um, well, first of all, let me start like this. Of course, Russia at this point is losing its best people. The best people are leaving to the United States and Europe and Israel and so on. And this is very, very tragic. And many of them are already in Berlin or I've met them here. And this will be a big problem because these are the most educated and liberal people that are that are leaving now. But still, I think that, you know, compared to other countries, Russia has a rather educated society and that we should not yet give up on the Russians per se. Why do I say that? Because I think most Russians that have come to Germany or to the United States or to France or any country in the last 30 years, They actually integrated very well into our system because they understood that here in our system, you have to behave differently and you get different opportunities. And they just behave in the way they behave because they live in the terrible Russian system. Not everybody carries these values of the Russian political or society system. But I think, you know, if you live in Russia, you sort of have to go along with it, whether you like it or not. Second point I don't think that there is such a thing as stability in autocracies. I don't think that the legitimacy of Putin goes very far, you know. I think even in the Russian elites, many people don't care much about Crimea. They would rather have their houses back in Miami Beach or in Nice or in Biarritz or, you know, go to Capri again. You know, all of this Russian patriotism always seems sort of shallow to me. Why do I say that? You know, none of these people would send, for example, their kids to the Russian army, Right. Ukrainians are very patriotic. They sign up for voluntary duty. They sign up for the army to defend their country. But if you look at the Russian elite, none of them would be so stupid to go into the Russian army and actually fight for these things that Putin thinks Russia should fight for. They all would rather be in Miami or in uh, Paris or in Switzerland. So I don't think it goes very far, actually. And we don't know how it will end. Or rather, I think there are the, only two options. I mean, if you look back at Russian politics of the last hundred years, there is no civilized transfer of power like in democratic states or like even in Ukraine, uh, where we have the first uh, civilized uh, transfer of power already in the 19, in the 1990s from Leonid to Leonid, as we all know. Um, in Russia, it's always death or putsch. So for Putin, it will also be death of Putsch, right? And uh, death would be the thing that you just described. I mean, he's not that old. It could go on for another 20 years. Um, but there could also be a Putsch, you know, like uh, with Khrushchev or Gorbachev, and it could end tomorrow. So I think what smart European politics or also American politics should do is... Be prepared for both. Be prepared for Putin hanging on because nobody dares to kick him out of the office, basically. But also be prepared for the eventuality that it ends tomorrow. Why would it end tomorrow? Because, you know, if you think about it, Russian leaders that lose wars or don't win wars rather, right, they always get into trouble and there will also be a sort of like reform or revolution that is triggered by these events. You know, you can see this with the Crimean War. You get the great reforms after the Crimean War. You can see it in 1905. Russia gets the Constitution because they lose the war. You can see the complete breakdown in 1917. You can see uh, after the loss of the Afghanistan war, you know, 1989, the collapse of the Soviet Union. So I think something similar could also happen very easily if this war is not successful. And I don't think it is very successful at this point, right? I mean, if the aim was to destroy the Ukrainian state, and I think this was the aim in the, in the beginning, then Putin is not doing very well. And I think it could be a very dangerous situation for him because I think the Russian elites, you know, would let someone like Putin get away with butcher or these massacres and war crimes if he wins the war. But if he doesn't win the war, then uh, things can change very quickly. And we know if there's a new leader in Russia, what they always do, you know, what Khrushchev did in the secret speech or what Gorbachev did after Zastoy, after Brezhnev. You know, they blame everything on the guy who was in power before them. Right. And what will the person say? You know, this is my historical prediction uh, for you. What will the person say that comes after Putin? He will look at Russia and say, oh, we are in a terrible state. We have a a terrible economy. Uh, We have terrible relations with the rest of the world. And why is this all the case? Because Vladimir Vladimirovich uh, did all these horrible things. And now we're going to do it uh, differently all over again. And there's going to be some sort of perestroika. Whether this will really change Russia or not, you know, I don't know. You know, it might be that it doesn't really change Russia that much. We have to see. I mean, Gorbachev tried and obviously he failed. I think, you know, what is very important, if Putin should go, is to watch whether the Russians will dismantle this criminal apparatus of the Russian secret police that has existed basically since 1917 under different names of Cheka, NKVD, KGB, FSB and so on. And as long as this exists, I don't think there will be a civilized Russian state. And I also think that Russia has to, you know, get rid of this imperial view of the world and start nation building. If Russia could see itself not as an empire, but as a nation that needs so much nation building because most Russians live so terribly, you know, if the Russian government wouldn't concentrate everything on being a world power and spending money on this, but on the welfare of their own citizens, then we could see a very different Russia. But, of course, at this point, I have to admit that this is sort of like an utopia, or it seems somewhat utopian. But, you know, if you study Russian history, then you see that you have long periods of stagnation. But if change comes, it sometimes comes very, very fast. And we also have to be prepared for these very, very fast periods of revolutionary change that I think are also very typical of Russian history.
0: After the war, will Europe return to business as usual with Russia? I don't believe that Ukraine will return to business as usual with Russia after so many atrocities, death, destruction, and genocidal war crimes.
1: Yes, I agree with you. I mean, you know, I mean, the situation, I mean, as a German, I would say, You know, there's still no business as usual between, say, Germany and Poland or Germany and Israel, although the war was like 80 years ago, right? I mean, for a very, very long time, Russian relations are going to suffer from this horrible uh, genocidal war that we're seeing now. and, And the Russian name will be tainted for a very long time. But still, I think, as with Germany, we should set conditions for reintegrating post-Putin Russia into the world, because what other chance do we have? But Russia would have to pay reparations. It would have to punish war criminals. It will have to rebuild its political system. And then we can talk about, you know, slowly getting back to something like uh, business as usual. But I think that these are the conditions that have to be fulfilled. And it would have to accept, of course, the full responsibility for this war of aggression against uh, Ukraine, but also against Georgia and other post-Soviet countries and make up for it the same way that West Germany has accepted responsibility for the Second World War after 1949. I think this is sort of like the condition for getting slowly back to something like business as usual with Russia. But it will take decades and it will be very difficult. It will be a very difficult process of reconciliation. And, of course, also Ukraine will have to play a role in this. It's a a question, of course, for Ukrainians, how much in the future, not now during the war, but how much in the future they will be willing to get back to some sort of, well, not exactly friendly maybe, but normal relations with Russia. I mean, we see from the German French or from the German-Polish example that this is, even the German-Israeli example, that this is possible. But we also know that we're talking about uh, many decades and very sincere efforts.
0: At this moment, I'm wrapping up this episode of the podcast Ukraine War Decoded. I am Viktor Kovalenko from the United States. My guest was a German historian, Dr. Jan Klaas Behrens. And we talked about Germany and its relations with Russia and Ukraine. Please support my podcast by donating to my PayPal and follow me on Twitter as Mr. Kovalenko. Goodbye for now and so long.